Yeah, so excited to get started here. So thanks everyone for joining. So to kick it off, for those joining for the first time, uh, this is a weekly show that's hosted by GirlSF, a community of citizens building a more inclusive and livable San Francisco, focusing on educating people on local issues, increasing civic engagement, and publishing election voter guides every year. Every week, we host elected officials and civil servants and community members from different perspectives to discuss problems that are facing San Francisco, um, and also broadly the country as well. Today, we'll be discussing the topic of the school board in San Francisco. We're joined by the founders of Better SF Public Schools, a campaign seeking to reform public school governance of the SF Board of Education with increased accountability, transpar transparency, and oversight. And uh, our two, two main guests today from, from the campaign is Patrick, who was just telling us all about the Queen's Gambit. Um, Patrick's a longtime SF resident and public school parent. Uh, of two SFUSD students. He started his career as a professional chess player and grandmaster and is a best-selling author and has since focused on philanthropy to support Bay Area students. Jennifer um, is also a public school parent and education leader based in San Francisco. She's a former SFUSD school administrator as well as a member of the superintendent fellows team. Uh, she's also a leadership coach for several principals across the United States and a writer for School Leaders Now. So thank you both for joining. Thank you. Thank you. So let's cut to the chase. Um, what is happening with the school board and why should it be restructured? Oh yeah, I'll, I'll take this question. Um, so um, just like a little bit about my background, you know, Patrick spent some time talking about chess and his passion for chess. I think my, my real lightning bolt, um, you know, passion was really fueled by this question around education at a really young age. So I've spent, you know, pretty much my entire, um, you know, college career and, and moving into, you know, um, post-college career, um, you know, just really trying to figure out what it is um, and what it would take to reduce some of the disparities that we see in education. And, and that's really from how I grew up. I grew up in a small town, had sort of the stability and predictability of a small town experience. Um, but my cousins uh, grew up in New York City, in Queens and in Miami, um, and were faced with changing schools in a large urban environment. So that really fueled my my question. And I you know, became a, a teacher and then kind of followed that path of becoming an instructional coach, a dean and assistant principal, and really made it my life's work um, to answer this fundamental question about changing the outcomes for kids who have been historically underserved. Um, and as a principal, I really felt the effects of bad governance regularly impeding my ability to do my job and serve students. Um, so as a school leader, you really want to hear and rise to the vision of the superintendent, right? A lot of, um, if you look at like past superintendents that we've had just here in San Francisco, they have trajectories similar to mine, right? They, they start off in the classroom, they taught, then they, you know, started to coach other teachers and mentor them. And then eventually, you know, rising to lead their own school, you know, moving to central office, pursuing like bigger leadership pursuits. You know, they're all we're, we're all here for a reason, right? Um, there, there's a it's it's like a calling, and and really to lead a big a big school district or to to lead students to achieve better things. Um, so when there's a board confusing the vision, the message, um, you know, the direction of district leadership, or you know, in the case that we're seeing now, just downright sabotaging, it is incredibly confusing and chaotic at the site level. Um, and so like I, you know, we're, we're in a time right now that's particularly bad. Um, our school board's been in the news sort of nonstop for just a lot of very different, very kind of crazy reasons. Um, but really, you know, I, I, I started to feel the effects of, you know, how, how our board is structured and kind of how it's not really serving kids or, or setting me up for success as a school leader um, really early on in my leadership. Um, I found that a lot of school board members would come with their own ideologies and beliefs about what they felt were most important. Um, but at the time when I first started, a lot of them didn't have experience in education. So I kind of thought that was the issue. Like if we just got, you know, board of ed members who were educators who understood education, then, then, then we'd have a better board. Right. So then, you know, flash Jennifer, forward. What, what types of backgrounds do they come from? You'd think that a background in education is a requirement, but are you saying they come from different backgrounds? 
or, um, you know, the, the school boards when I first entered San Francisco, I, I knew that there weren't any teachers on the board. You know, that was kind of the main thing was like, I was like, what? why do they think that's important? Like that has nothing to do with helping schools improve, you know, um, just some of the things that they would spend a lot of time discussing and talking about, um, you know, nonprofits or, you know, folks with political aspirations. Um, sometimes you have parents, which that's obviously a, a great perspective to have as someone who's, you know, directly affected by the schools because their kids are in the schools. You know, you do want those perspectives, but there's other, um, you know, skill sets that are needed. And and we certainly didn't answer this dilemma by putting more educators on the board because we, we have four of them now. Um, two of them are actually former colleagues of mine. Um, you know, great, great, great people. You know, we, we definitely sat in on plenty of professional developments together and um, you know, I, I, I have, I have respect for the work they do. They have experienced education. Um, but each of them is, you know, pursued the position to push some of their own ideologies as part of their brand or as even like political aspirations. Um, you know, and, and I think one example that I like to give that kind of clearly sort of shows the effects it had on me and my ability to do my job would be the example of revolution foods. Um, so this was before the pandemic, um, but with some of the members on the current board, and um, just one day, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's in the spring at, at my school site. I was a um, assistant principal at a, at a large middle school where a big part of my job is lunch duty. You know, like you got a thousand middle schoolers on grape day. It can be kind of chaotic. They love throwing those grapes. Um, but but that was that was part of my job, right? Supervising and keeping kids safe and making sure they're fed during lunch. Well, you know, one day it, the, the news kind of broke out that the school board just abruptly canceled the, or, or decided not to renew the contract for Revolution Foods. They're our food vendor. They're the ones who supply thousands of children across the city of San Francisco with like most of their meals that they get that day. Um, and there was no plan B. It was just sort of this, um, you know, one of the school board members, uh, I, I remember was quoted, well, if the food's not good enough for my kids, she had two kids in the system. Um, then, then they're not good enough for anyone's kids. And it was kind of like her calling to like change the food, which which is all fine and well. We all have plenty of jokes about cafeteria food and how tasty or not tasty it is. But she lacked kind of the the deeper knowledge of why <laughs> we had that contract in the first place. You know, what else was out there? There was no plan B. Um, and so this led to panic, right? That we, we were about to go into summer, the most food insecure time of the year for low-income kids. Our kids depend on our schools to feed them and the board of education made it almost impossible for us to do this um you know so so just having to kind of scramble and like kind of wait on on you know <laughs> wait with our teeth clenched you know what what's going to be next how are we gonna be able to feed our kids this summer what's going to happen and eventually the board did they did a whole bunch of taste testings and they called in all these other vendors and they did this big exploration and several months later they decided to just continue the contract with revolution foods as is so it was sort of like this big carfuffle and this big panic and a lot of hundreds of hours of school district time sort of scrambling to kind of make the the whims of the board you know um help them understand and get up to speed with why why it is we went with the vendor we did um and that's just one example of how that affected me at the site you know another example is renaming um it's actually how i met patrick he wrote the renaming report and you know for those who are in this room you know, are probably familiar that there was a decision made in the middle of the pandemic to um, push forward uh, a resolution that had actually passed before the pandemic, but, you know, the committee decided to kind of move forward to rename 44 of our schools in San Francisco. This is out of 114 sites that we have. And so you got to think from a school leader perspective, you know, schools are shut down. You've got parents and families clamoring for answers, Chromebooks, hotspots, you know, Zoom's not working, teachers trying to figure this out, taking like basics, like taking attendance, keeping kids engaged, you know, doing surveys, all, all while trying to keep morale up and, and sort of do some, some virtual fun thing to help kids feel connected to the school and morning circle. I mean, there's just so much um, to be rolled out and so many logistics and, and just so much change happening at once that all of a sudden, as a school leader, like now I have to focus on renaming, I gotta get a committee together to figure out a new name we want for our school. Like even if renaming was something the school had been talking about and something they actually wanted, the rollout put individual sites in a crisis and leaders really didn't have any good answers. So like all this to say, our current citywide elections guarantee that regardless of who's on the board, this is what they do, right? It's a stepping stone. Let me make my mark, you know, let me let me put one more notch in my brand by introducing this resolution or passing this edict or giving this quote to the media about this great thing I'm gonna do so that everyone can see the mark I made. Right. And, and, and I can kind of grow my reputation and, and move into something bigger and, and better. And we're, we're seeing that with the Board of Supervisors. So many of them came from the Board of Ed. Um, and, and really, this should not be happening on the backs of our kids. And, and maybe, Bilal, if I can if I can sort of um, run with that just for a minute or so, because um, 
Jennifer mentioned that I, I did write the renaming report. Jennifer has, as you can tell, years and years and years of, of experience, actually professional experience working in um, SF, uh, San Francisco Unified. Um, I don't have that. I'm, I'm a parent. Um, I'm a public of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm a product of public school, um, public schools myself. So is my wife. Um, you know, both our kids have gone through, you know, from kindergarten, ninth grade. Um, you know, we really care about the public schools, but I've never been personally involved with the public schools in San Francisco until late last year. And, um, you know, I'm involved with a group called Families for San Francisco. That's actually how Jennifer and I met. Um, and I, I got really captured by the school renaming. I, I, I learned something about it. And I kind of couldn't believe it. Um, and I started watching all the videos. I watched, I, I hate to admit this, I watched every single minute of the school names advisory committee meetings. Uh, Jennifer likes to say, I, I watched every minute so you didn't have to. Um, and um, what was the it, most painful minute that you remember? <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> the, there were several. It's hard to choose between them. I mean, they spent, they spent literally five seconds um, raising and um, saying, we have to get rid of the name Abraham Lincoln. You know, so like when they say like, oh, we did this research. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't know what they did in their private times, but like there was no discussion, right? On like obviously one of the most consequential people in American history. I calculated actually at one point that it took them less than a minute to get rid of all of Mount Rushmore, right? All four of the presidents on Mount Rushmore. Um, but, um, but what was also painful was they just made factual errors, just just horrible, blatant factual errors, right? Um, and it was also incredibly, incredibly ideological. They they came back to Diane Feinstein like twice because the first time they couldn't justify getting rid of her, but then they said, "Well, we'll come back again." You know, it couldn't hurt. I mean, it's like it was just nuts watching this. And then afterwards, I learned that Mark Sanchez who was the president of the Board of Education last year, he put, and he was one of the co-sponsors of the resolution, which, which I supported, I think done well, this would have been great actually, this would have been educational, this would have been fantastic for San Francisco is to really sort of grapple with and, 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 and process our history. But instead it was treated as a purely political exercise. He put his campaign manager in as the chair of the school names advisory committee, right? The, the person who did most of the spreadsheet work, and by spreadsheet work, I mean basically looking up 10 things you didn't know about Paul Revere on history.com and getting it wrong to, to say that Paul Revere was a colonist, like you know, fighting the Penobscot Indians, which is completely untrue. He fought in a, in a Revolutionary War battle at the Penobscot Bay uh, up in Maine. But anyway, like the, that person, is one of Allison Collins's closest allies and is frequently calling in to Board of Education meetings to push some agenda item on behalf of Allison Collins. So it it was just it was just frankly it was really kind of horrifying and it was really eye-opening to see what a political and politicized body this had become. And just like Jennifer was saying, it's really driven by the structure of it. And that's, that's why we want to change the structure so that, you know, we're no longer, it's no longer such a political thing. It's, it's just doing what it's supposed to do, which is running the, running the, um, the schools for the benefit of the, of the city. Hey, this is Sachin from GrowSF. Thanks so much for listening to our town hall. GrowSF also publishes a newsletter each week, which summarizes the news around San Francisco and includes fun things to do around the city. If you aren't already a subscriber, check it out at growsf.org. So it sounds like the, the thesis of the, the context of the problem is that the board has become too politicized and based on how it becomes a stepping stone for future government, for future office, um, or just the history of it. So what are some of the proposals that um, that you both have in mind or the Better SF Public Schools campaign has for alternatives for how we should be um, electing and structuring the school board? Maybe some context on how that election happens today as well. Yeah, so let, let me start with the context and maybe then Jennifer, maybe you could pick up on, on some of the um, uh, proposals we have. You know, 
when we did a lot of, of historical research and looking at how it used to be done in San Francisco and what the evolution of that was for the Board of Education, you know, um, through a series of reforms during the 20th century, for 70 years, San Francisco developed a system where the school board was appointed. It was appointed by the mayor and it was then confirmed by the electorate. And it definitely was not a perfect system by any stretch, but it was designed, it was, it was purposely designed. There was a big reform in 1900, another big reform in 1920, a more minor reform in 1932. And it was designed to make the governance of the schools ultimately accountable to the city government. And it was done in a very purposeful way um, for, for that perspective. It was changed in 1971 to citywide elections. Um, and that's what made the governance of the public schools really independent of the city government. But that change was not made in an effort to improve the governance of the schools. It was made as an effort to resist school desegregation. So in fact, what happened was in the late 1960s and early 1970s, um, there was a growing um, um, drive to desegregate the public schools. There was a lawsuit and, and the whole history behind this. Um, the people of San Francisco, a number of more conservative elements of, of, of San Francisco wanted to fight that. And they fastened upon making the school board elected as opposed to appointed. And that's what gave us the system that we have today. And over the last 50 years, really two things have kind of moved in opposite directions. On the one hand, the public schools have actually become more and more dependent on San Francisco for its revenues. San Francisco contributes 30% of the revenues to the public schools. That is over and above the revenue that comes through Sacramento, which is, uh, comes through what's called the local control funding formula, which is the way all of California's public schools are funded. So the 30% contribution by San Francisco city revenues is by far the most local revenue of any California school district. So San Francisco actually supports the public schools quite a lot. But on the other hand, the governance has actually become more dysfunctional. And we see that in a couple of different ways. First of all, a really shockingly high percentage of school-aged children in San Francisco don't attend public schools. We have more than 25% of school-aged kids in San Francisco go to um, independent schools, right, private or parochial, and a number of other families move out when um, children become school age. So this is kind of disengagement from the public schools. Um, we also have one of the worst achievement gaps in the state. So, I mean, just to be blunt about it, black and Hispanic Latino kids um, are really not getting the education that they need and they deserve. We are failing the absolute litmus test of equity in the, the education that we're giving to the, that we're providing for the kids who most need it. And then finally, our public school finances have been terribly mismanaged. We have a structural budget deficit of $110 million, which is 10% of the, of the budget of San Francisco public schools. I mean, simply put, even though San Francisco keeps increasing its funding at the public schools, the public schools are not performing. Um, and it, it's, you know, we have great teachers, we have an involved parent community. The problem is, a, is it's a governance problem. And that's what Jennifer and I really want to, uh, want to uh, address. Cool. Yeah. And if I could, um, you know, chime in. So, so really we're, 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 we're talking about an appointment system, um, and really designing something that gives the city, um, some kind of oversight role over the school board so that we can get the right people, the right focus. Um, you know, we want transparency and accountability. Um, we need it and our kids deserve it. Um, and this really starts by defining like, what's the role of the school board, right? Is it, is it, <laughs> is it really meant to be a political stepping stone? Like, is that written anywhere? Is that like, is that what we as a city feel okay with? Because it, it clearly that is um, true for quite a few of our city supervisors. Is that, is that what we want the function of the board to be just a way to, a way to enter into city politics? Um, and, and I would argue, obviously not, um, you know, we really want to have some kind of oversight role that we need over our school district. Um, but a body that can also report out to the public, um, and, and report out over something, you know, we have, we have something in San Francisco Unified called Vision 2025. That's, that's what I kind of heard as a school leader was like Vision 2025. And how is what you're doing at your school site? How does it align to our Vision 2025? And it's a beautiful vision. And it was one that was written um, in a very collaborative process. It, it, it took, you know, um, it took many rounds of town halls and, and parent input and everything about like, what's our vision for the kids of San Francisco? And yet I hear nothing about it now. It's, it's a whole new board and it's a new superintendent and, and we're not quite hearing the same publicity or awareness or pushing 
launching of Vision 2025, which is a pretty fantastic, you know, call to, to do right by our kids and, and really help them meet 21st century demands. Um, and so, I mean, when, like really concretely, and, and I'm also an SFUSD parent, my kids actually attend the school where I used to be principal. So I'm, I'm very, very tied to the school communities that I not only led, but now I serve as a parent volunteer. Um, and my kids actually went, uh, both of them together for the first time today. So that was exciting. Um, but the biggest example I can have of how this uh, like separate, uncoordinated city and school district services to kids affects me personally as a parent, because right now they're totally separate. Um, and I think that's one of the important things for for the folks listening in on this call to understand. And, and you know, I, I, I know a lot of folks have been following, um, you know, the different happenings at the at the school board level um, and, and people have been watching it much more closely than before. Um, but for folks who might not be aware, right, our city really has no control over our school district. They're, they're operating as entirely separate systems. And one just sort of like almost like symbolic way that this played out for me as a parent was, um, you know, during during the thick of this pandemic, you know, we're all locked at home and, and searching for safe, healthy distance ways we can be outside. And I was walking my five year old son uh, through our neighborhood, um, past the Bernal playground um, around the corner to get books. And, you know, um, it's, it's, it's just a few blocks from our house. And um, he saw kids playing there and, and was excited, you know, wanting to go to the playground. And I, you know, had to let him know that's, you know, that's not for you. Um, we can't play there. It's locked. And he's like, but I don't get it. They're, you know, they get to play there. Like, can we get books at least, you know, I'm like, sorry, sweetie, no books. No, the library's closed. It's being used as a learning hub. And I'm, you know, absolutely thrilled and, and excited and happy that we had the learning hub structure in place that was put on by the city and completely separate from the schools. So several blocks in both directions from this library, there were, you know, school buildings with their own libraries, with their own resources that probably could have served our, our kids much better during this time. And yet instead, we now have, you know, basically three padlocked outdoor spaces um, just within walking distance of my home that, that we didn't have access to and a whole big building full of books we didn't have access to um, because our city services and our school services aren't coordinated. You know, and that's and that's really a shame. Like, imagine what some Betty with some better city oversight and coordination and accountability could have done with these resources, right? And that's a very small example, but on a larger scale, just imagine what we could do if we had that coordination and that oversight, um, and and all the issues that have come with the separate system, like all the things that we could fix. I I really it it excites me to think about the possibilities, um, and also knowing that you know other cities are doing this, right? Chicago. Boston, DC, um, they all have appointment systems, um, and they've and they've they've seen success with these, right? They've seen improvements, and and it really is time that we stop, you know, kind of mucking around and 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 playing around with like the same the same you know the same solutions or the same proposed solutions and expecting different results, right? That's the definition of insanity. And we're at a moment in time where where there are people listening in on this call, like people who care about restructuring the school board, you know, parent groups bubbling up in all different directions to try to figure out the solution, and really the solution it doesn't lie with just this current board, you know, and I know there's a lot of people frustrated with the current folks on the current board, but we really want to think systemically long-term. And this is, this is such a pivotal moment in our city's history that we have the opportunity to do something about it and seize it. And we don't want to let this pass us by. Uh, Patrick and Jennifer, hi, this is Joel and Guardio. I have a question to kind of take us out of the weeds and, and, and look at an overview. So San Francisco is famously known as a city that has more dogs than children. And we're one of the cities in America with the least number of, uh, of children. And, and, and families who do have children in San Francisco, a third of them opt out of public school. They just go to private school. So if you're going to restructure the school board, this is going to have to go before all the voters of San Francisco. Uh, the major vast majority who aren't in public schools, who don't have kids. Why care? Why, is, why does the school board matter? What, like, what is important about restructuring the school board that you need to tell the vast majority of voters who might be checked out of the issue. Oh, I would love, I would love to take this one, Patrick, if that's okay. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm having a very hard time defending to my family back East, like why we don't move back East. <laughs> you know, my husband and I are still, we decide we're, we're staying here. Like we're, we're not leaving San Francisco, you know, and it's getting harder and harder to justify to them because of our schools. But San Francisco is an awesome city. Like this city is so great and we've we've been at the forefront in so many things right we have some of you know the the best innovation right we we have the giants we've got all these you know we have the warriors we've got these you know like award-winning athletics we've got art we've got the best food honestly um you know we have like you know we're we're, we're like the the epicenter of technology just being here in the bay area with with all these you know 
like very innovative tech companies and um, biotech. I mean, we, we just, we have a lot going on in the city and we've always been sort of like our own unique, innovative, um, beautiful, gorgeous place to be. But our city, our city schools have just lagged behind. You, you just don't see the same kind of innovation, the same kind of, um, you know, paving the way, the, the same kind of 21st century preparation for our kids that, that we really need. Um, and that's, that's, that's not that's not who we are right like we we can fundamentally catch up and and exceed and go far beyond what we ever thought possible if we're willing to take a hard look at ourselves um and i don't i don't think as a city it's in anyone's interest especially just anyone who lives here anyone who loves the city as much as i do you know and am committed to being a part of like we can't continue to just ignore and neglect our school system and be okay with it trailing so far behind. And and nothing exemplifies this more than the fact that like this like my kids' first day of school for the 2021 school year was today. <laughs> it's you know, we're in April. They have, you know, a grand total of what, just a, a couple weeks of schools, a couple days a week. Like, how is that humanly possible that they've been home this entire time? And yet everywhere else across the country, every other major city has been open for quite a while. Um, you know, and 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 far further along than than we are and we're playing a massive game of catch-up even on that level so jennifer correct me if i'm wrong but it sounds like the spirit of your answer to, to joel's question is that even if a certain percentage of parents in san francisco go to private school um we make up a symbiotic ecosystem in san francisco san francisco's uh, has patronage of so many different people from diverse backgrounds and parents of even private school children should care about the public school system because a lot of people who can't afford private school still make up the people who work in our restaurants, they make up the people who work um, in schools or in, in our museums. And if we lose that, then we lose what makes up San Francisco. Um, it's kind of what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah, um, absolutely. And, and, and we, we just kind of lose like a sense of, of just who we are. Honestly, we, we can't continue to, to be a city that's um, so far ahead in so many areas and yet lagging so far behind um, in our schools. And we can't develop the next generation of, of leaders and innovators and folks, you know, um, contributing to the city and sticking around and, you know, knowing, you know, knowing their neighbors and, and, and living near their family, if, if we're not preparing them to, to do so. I would also just add really briefly, I mean, public school system is one of the most important pieces of our social infrastructure as a city. A great city should have a great public school system. And I think that unfortunately, there has been something of an attitude of, oh, the public schools are something I do for someone else, but I'm not really, it's not really part of my life among, among some number of people in San Francisco. But if we really stop and think about it, that doesn't make, that's crazy, right? I mean, what, what is more important? I mean, like clean water, um, good hospital system, great schools. I mean, like, like it's such a fundamental part of our city. We should all care because it's, it's part of what makes for a great city. Makes sense. Um, so in terms of, uh, to, Brought this proposal of appointees, uh, going batch and appointed system. Would love to dive into like the mechanics of that. Maybe get your thoughts on pros and cons of alternative proposals that I've seen in the media as well. So, if we have an appointed system, does the mayor appoint them, or do we have some other commission that also appoints them? Uh, another option I've heard is instead of having uh, citywide elections, doing district level elections. Um, do you think that would have a, a a benefit or wouldn't solve the problem? I think a third thing is like, should we have requirements around like actual public school experience or administrator experience, um, either into all, option A or option B? Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on pros and cons of of each of these proposals. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to jump into that. So, uh, I mean, honestly, I'm going to be pretty blunt about the whole notion of district elections. Uh, we think it's basically just moving the chairs around. I mean, it's a way to look like you're doing something without changing anything. Um, the, the fundamental problem is that the school government sort of operates on its own where there really needs to be more accountability, 
more transparency and more ability for the city government to have a role, an appropriate role in determining what the right, um, you know, sort of what the right um, definition of the, the school board's work should be, what qualifications they should have and so forth. But then, when, and, and by the way, that is something that a number of, of large urban cities across the United States have grappled with over the last several decades. And then when you start to unpack that, there's a lot of possibility. Um, so for example, you know, let's say, let's say, first of all, let's pick the, let's take the, the question of like who appoints. Well, the different cities do it in different ways. In San Francisco's history, the mayor um, appointed all seven people and then the electorate confirmed them. Um, we actually think it makes more sense to have a split between the mayor and the board of supervisors. And in fact, the, the system we're kind of kicking around right now that we like is what we call a 4 one system, where the mayor would appoint four, the board of supervisors would appoint two, and then the city controller would appoint one, and the one appointed by the city controller would have finance expertise. And the advantage of that is you... You make sure you've got one person um, that has the finance expertise that you need for a properly functioning board. You sort of make that an apolitical appointment, right? So you sort of take it out somewhat of the political process. You split it between the board uh, of supervisors and the mayor. You give the mayor more power, which is typical across cities that operate an appointment system, because you really want to have one um, one sort of point of responsibility. But you make sure that the Board of Supervisors have some um, power as well as a check on the mayor so that you don't get, like one of the problems that we've seen, for example, can be uh, in New York, as an example of this, you get a really strong mayor in Bloomberg and people are really happy about that, but Bloomberg sort of imposes his will and then Bloomberg leaves and de Blasio comes in and suddenly it's like a 180 degree shift. And that doesn't lead to the kind of stability and the kind of buy-in that you want. Um, so that kind of a split seems to us to make sense, although that's certainly something that can be discussed and, and debated. Um, some cities that we've observed have a nominating committee. Boston's an example of that. And that's a system that seems to work pretty well for them where um, you know, the, the mayor and the board of supervisors wouldn't get to appoint anyone they want. They'd have to appoint among a list that's given to them from a nominating committee, or I guess in San Francisco, we'd probably call it a nominating commission because we like saying commission. Um, and then that commission would have um, a representative from the union, representative from community groups, representative from parent groups, maybe a representative from the business community, maybe an academic. Um, or, you, know, you could have like a number of, of different people. So you have a broad swath of representation. Um, and you still could keep the system of allowing people, uh, the general electorate to vote on all of the appointees. Let's you know, keep it sort of four in one year, three in the presidential year, three in the off-presidential year, which is kind of the way we do it now. And by giving the electorate that vote, you allow them to continue to have a voice in the process. One thing we recently did, for example, is we made it possible for um, non-citizen immigrants to vote in um, board of election, uh, board of education elections to give them a voice in the process because they have children in the school system. That's something that makes sense to us. So you can include um, sort of an extra layer of representation in the process. There's a lot of different sort of ways to think about it. Um, and certainly that can be sort of hashed out as uh, in the coming months as we, as we um, talk to people here, what people think um, and, and you know figure out what's probably gonna work best for San Francisco. Another component of that is a reporting component. You know, Jennifer brought up a really, really great example, which is this Vision 2025, which an earlier Board of Education passed and now has sort of been lost by the wayside in terms of there's, there's really no reporting, there's no metrics. You read the annual report for the school system, they, they really don't sort of talk at all about how they're tracking towards any um, any goals in, in measurable metrics, um, you know, according to that strategic plan. Well, you know, if you had to report once or twice a year to the Board of Supervisors, give the Board of Supervisors an oversight role as a further check on the, on the authority of the mayor, that then um, gives further transparency, more accountability. Uh, and then finally, um, you know, there really does need to be some way 
of handling a situation where you have a Board of Education commissioner um, who's acted very, very egregiously in some way, and, and, and there should be some appropriate way to remove somebody through some combination of the, of the mayor and the, and the Board of Supervisors. Um, a final thing I'll note is, as we're thinking through designing the right way to um, put the city government in a, a sort of a, a position of oversight over the um, public schools, it also might allow for certain ways to define the role of the Board of the Education. For example, maybe the Board of Education should only meet for a certain number of hours per month. That's a system that apparently works pretty well in Long Beach for example, just like literally limit the amount of time they spend on things so they just focus on uh, the things that matter. Require them to get training by the uh, California School Board Association um, so that um, on you know, new commissioners and, and, and recurring commissioners, you know that they actually have had the training they're supposed to have and they're focusing on the, on the right things and know how to run the meetings appropriately. There's a lot of ways that you can sort of bake these details in and we're trying to learn from not just our own history, but what other cities have done successfully, what seems to work well, and what would seem to make the most sense for San Francisco. How do you deal with the, the knee-jerk reaction that some folks, or probably a lot of folks will have uh, when it comes to that, the concept of you're taking away a right, you're taking away the right to vote. And people who aren't even invested in the schools might just reactionary say, oh, no, no, don't take away the right to vote. Do you have like, um, some kind of messaging or, or something that you want to educate folks as to, as to kind of head that off at the pass? Well, I guess the first thing to say is uh, Jennifer and I don't have the power to take anything away from anybody. You know, this, this, is a, this will be a, a vote on the city charter um, that people will decide. I mean, the, the people in a democratic society have to decide what are the things that the people want to decide for themselves what are the things that the people want to delegate? And when you delegate, what is the right way to delegate it and what's the right oversight? And that's, that's an absolutely fundamental component of democracy. So, I mean, I, this is the democratic process and this, you know, the endless conversations and, and discussions and, and, and examinations and, and debates is all part of the democratic process. And then I guess I would just say, and you know, I'm sure Jennifer has some thoughts on this too, like is the election system that we've only had for 50 years, that we adopted for quite frankly, a pretty problematic reason in the first place, is that system working for us? That's really the question. And I'll tell you, I think of myself as being pretty informed, but you know, un until the last three or four months, I couldn't have named all the um, commissioners on the Board of Education. I certainly didn't know anything about them. And I know what it's like to read a ballot and you, you go through this 220 page ballot book where you've got you know, 15 um, uh, yes, no uh, questions and then you're voting for various um, people and you get down to the Board of Education and you're kind of down to the paragraph description that you get in the book. And quite frankly, it, it's not telling you anything that you really need to know about them. It doesn't seem to me, it doesn't seem to us like a system that's working. I don't know, Jennifer, what do you think? Yeah, no, I would wholeheartedly agree. And, um, you know, as, as, as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, you know, all the hiring that I used to do when I was a school principal. And, and, and my number one question is, how do I get the best, most highly qualified people in front of the kids? Um, and one of the processes that we used to do is we actually made um, folks come in and do a sample lesson in front of our students. And we had our students kind of like um, give a little review of them. They had like three little questions on a little like half sheet of paper. And then we collected them, we reviewed the student feedback and we went over it with the candidate. Um, and that was sort of a way to give students input into the process. Like we, we just simply don't have that kind of a process in place for school board members, right? We have this um, election and we have this giant voter guide and it just has a little paragraph. Like imagine if, you know, like we're trying to do one of the most fundamentally important things we can do, which is educate our kids. And we're making this decision in our vote based on like a little paragraph, you know, I mean, like, like how, how many events and speeches and panels do I as a voter have to go through so I can fully understand who would be the best person to serve kids and serve the best interests of our, of our city's um, 
city's children. And, and I would argue that our current system really doesn't do that. And, and, and really, I felt this so much as a leader with just the constant changing of priorities of messaging and, um, you know, what we, we, we're kind of starting to refer to as the zigging and the zagging, right? You get one, you know, round of, of newly elected Board of Ed members, and if they're you know, vocal enough and loud enough and passionate enough about certain, you know, resolutions and ideologies that they want to put forth, then all of a sudden, you know, everything that we've been working on kind of falls to the wayside. And now we have to follow this new trend, you know, and then, and then lo and behold, they become board of, you know, a, a city supervisor. They're no longer on the board of ed. Someone else replaces their role and they completely jerk us in the next direction. And it's exhausting, um, you know, and, and we see, that kind of play out with the politics too, just within, you know, staffing decisions and, you know, we're not going to renew this person's contract, you know, even though they're senior leadership and they had an initiative they're getting off the ground, um, you know, but there's some, some political ugliness going on and for whatever reason they get ousted. And yet we at the site level feel that pain in that, like, you know, we, th these are, these are some of our, our leaders and the people that we look to, to follow, to make great things happen for kids. Suddenly they're not there at the helm anymore. Well, who do we follow now? You know, what, what's the next step? And you just kind of wait to see who gets appointed and who gets, you know, who, who gets, who gets put in that new position and, and what direction they're going to take you in. And our city, we can't afford that. We can't afford this sort of lack of consistency, stability, and going towards a clear plan and a clear vision um, for our city's kids. Hey, this is Sachin from GrowSF. Part of what GrowSF does is we advocate for things we care about around the city. Right now, we're making a big push to make outdoor dining permanent. Our local businesses have really suffered during the pandemic, and they need outdoor dining to become permanent so they can get back on their feet. We have a petition and an email campaign so that our supervisors know that this is what we need. Please check it out at GrowSF.org. So would love to start to take some questions from the audience. Um, if you have questions for Jennifer or Patrick on everything they've talked about um, with respect to the problems with the school board as well as opportunities to reform. So feel free to raise your hand in the audience and we'll bring you up on stage. Hi, Stacy. Hi, Bilal. Um, I, sorry, I just joined recently and, um, but I am deeply steeped in SFUSD. Um, I have two teams and have been on the scene um, uh, their entire lives um, because they were going to close our neighborhood school when my oldest was uh, uh, five months old. And so it was from then on that I was um, like a hawk, at least through most of the elementary years. And now I'm like completely off the grid and, you know, teachers barely know who I am. But I, I have been paying attention to this. I've known nearly all of the um, Board of Ed members um, until like this last batch. And I have a voter guide that I put out every election season. It's been at least 10 years now. Um, and I cannot more heartily uh, endorse having the appointment. I came in right Pat as Patrick was explaining the appointment system and that you might have a committee, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, yep, sold. And the reason why we should all get behind this is um, just as you were saying, Patrick was confessing, I probably couldn't have named all of the Board of Ed members um, if it weren't for the past couple of months. Um, there are many San Franciscans that can't name their own supervisor or, or match the supervisors of maybe neighboring districts or something or list all. When it comes down to Board of Ed, it's just like... And Jennifer said, I mean, that's at the bottom, 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 bottom of the list. No one cares until something disastrous like this happens. And there have been um, micro disasters along the way. And it, it's just all been collapsing upon itself. San Francisco has the lowest percentage of children as a part of their population um, of any major city in the U.S. I believe it's about... I'm rusty on this, but I believe it's about 13, 13%. Most, most other cities are like 18 to 20. So places like Phoenix, like Boca Raton, traditional like retirement communities, Scottsdale, they have a higher percentage of children than San Francisco does. That means we have a lower percentage of parents. Of the parents we do have, one third of the parents send their kids to private school. So they're not really invested either in making sure that the Board of Ed, we have the lowest percent of the, and then if you, if you add in um, the immigrant parents who 
um, could be anyone from, you know, uh, south of the border to um, uh, Cisco has imported them uh, to work for us that aren't able to vote. It's like we have a, a shockingly low number of parents. And then of those that are actually engaged and really doing the research on the candidates or whatever, no one cares. No one's paying attention. Everyone is voting for the postcard they got in the mail. Oh, they're endorsed by the teachers union. Oh, they must be great. Wrong. <laughs> That's exactly what got us into this. The past 15 years, every candidate who has been endorsed by the union or is an educator themselves has won. And that is, um, so they are beholden to the union, which doesn't always represent the teachers themselves that are in the classroom, but their own self-interest as a union. That is really what's caused a lot of what has gone on now. So um, I, I think if you sum a lot of that up and put it in with the genius of what you were talking about, how you can make this a contributory decision, an educated decision, I think that's really what people want. Because saying that you're taking away someone's voice and no one bothered to look at what these people were about, they just looked at whatever mailer they got, that's, 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 not, a, that's not a choice. That's just you being, your strings being pulled. Yeah. So thanks for the that's, yeah. So thank you. I'm Stacy. Yeah. Um, uh, Do you have a question for the uh, panelists as well before we bring on another? another, Just how fast can we get this on the ballot? So, or whatever, whatever way we need to do, uh, whatever we need to do to make this so that people can decide, yep, yep, I think this is a good way, a good system of checks and balances, et cetera. Um, How fast can we do that? That's what I'd love to know. Yeah, so actually, I'll, I'll ask the question and then, uh, Stacey, I'll move you to the audience again and then um, bring up someone else on the stage as well. But yeah, Patrick and, and Jennifer, what is the process to um, get this appointment system in place? Like, how many, like, what, what, how, do, how do you get something on the ballot? How many you need to yeah. vote? Well, so, 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 um, uh, well, so thank you, Stacey, for that very um, articulate, um, you know, sort of um, statement of the, uh, of the case. Um, it, it actually is a deliberative process as it should be, because this is a fundamental change. This is a change to the city charter. Um, and so San Francisco um, is pretty um, unique and special in that you know, we're both a city and a county. We control our own charter. Um, in other places, um, a change like this might have to be done in conjunction with the state. But here in San Francisco, we control our own destiny. Um, we have to decide to vote on an amendment to the city charter, which is essentially the, the sort of the constitution of the city and county of San Francisco. And so the first election where that can take place is more than a year from now, it's June, 2022. And that by the way, assumes that election happens on time for reasons I won't bore you with right now, uh, but has to do with the US census being incredibly late. Thank you, Donald Trump for the gajillion ways you screwed us. Um, uh, it may be that our um, primary actually is a couple months later than is regularly scheduled. But if we assume it's June 2022, that'll be the election. And so um, the the charter amendment has to be written. You have to actually be gathering signatures for something that is concrete. You can't just say, you know, sort of details to come later. So the actual proposal, the proposed language, the actual amendment has to be written. And then once it's written, it has to be a process where the city attorney says, yes, this is going to pass muster and so forth. And then you start gathering signatures. And that would probably start roughly five to six months from now. So think of the next five to six months as sort of the deliberative process to discuss um, what the details should be, what would really work best for San Francisco and why, and everything that goes into that. And then you start gathering signatures. That takes another couple of months. And then you run the campaign to have the great conversation to debate whether we're going to pass this charter amendment. The charter amendment itself only needs 50% plus one, um, but it needs to be um, placed on the ballot by gathering more than 50,000 signatures uh, valid signatures, they have to be, you know, sort of um, uh, checked, inspected and so forth, valid signatures of San Francisco residents. It's an arduous process. 
it could be an arduous process because we're talking about changing the charter of, of San Francisco. So there's plenty of time for discussion and deliberation. Uh, thanks, Patrick. Jennifer, do you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, I would just add, um, Stacy. I appreciate and love your passion so much. And I just love that question. Like, how fast can we do this? Um, because I, I just want to put a plug for getting involved with us. Um, I, I thought the story of watching your neighborhood school almost get shut down and then kind of using that as, as a jumping point to, um, you know, get almost hyper involved and, and kind of follow this stuff, uh, you know, so closely, even putting out your own voter guides is, is exactly the kind of energy and the kind of enthusiasm we need on our campaign. So, so going to our website, joining our email list, volunteering, donating. I mean, this is a, a grassroots parents effort. You know, it's, 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 it's the two of us like really, really, um, you know, um, doing, giving it our all, um, and we need people to help us out. So, um, time is such a valuable thing and, you know, um, we just, we want, you know, as, as, as many people as possible to join us and help get this, get this to pass. And that website is better SF public schools.org. Um, and, uh, Jennifer is absolutely right. Please, um, come sign up, volunteer. Um, if, if you, if you believe in what we're doing, love to have you join us. Yeah, thanks again, Stacy, for the question. Um, Uma, thanks for coming on stage. Uh, What's your question for Patrick and Jennifer? Hi, uh, thanks for allowing me to ask. Uh, so I actually have like a question about engaging with two different cohorts of San Francisco residents, and I'll explain why each of them. So one is people that don't have kids. So what are suggestions on actually getting them involved in this? And I've been a part of that cohort myself. My daughter is only seven. So she's only been, she's only a first grader in a SF public school. And the second one is important because this one I think it's, is a bit murky, which is how do you get non-citizens involved in, in kind of the SFUSD voting system? So I think Patrick mentioned earlier that we are, so I, I am not a US citizen. I live in San Francisco. So technically by SF, city law, I am allowed to vote on the school board elections. But the way uh, the federal law is, it can, the way it is worded, it is actually puts me, it, it is concerning enough that as far as I know, most immigrants don't participate in the local SFUSD election for fear of it jeopardizing long-term uh, status in the country. So given that these two cohorts are so huge, in the city like how do you how should we kind of think of engaging with those cohorts and getting them actually interested in helping the public school cause oh that's a that's a great question um i think um now in particular is our moment because so many folks are paying attention i think if you had asked this question maybe a year ago, folks weren't as, you know, um, as Patrick mentioned, he, he's like, he's like, I, I probably wouldn't have been able to tell you all the names of the people on the board. And now we, we know them intimately because um, it's just been, um, you know, article after article in, in, you know, different media outlets about the craziness that's happening at the board level and people really um, almost having like a, a, a reckoning with our, our current public school system as it is now. And I think San Franciscans, you know, I, I mean, globally, everyone's sort of in a state of of wondering what is you know what's the future going to bring what's 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 the city going to look like post pandemic right we've seen we've seen our our beloved stores and restaurants and places shut down some of the things that we love so much about the city um close and i think um you know we're 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 seeing that at the school level too not not that schools are closing but families are leaving and these are neighbors these are you know, um, coworkers, these are, um, you know, the, the people who have really made up a part of our city experience. And I think everybody can resonate, everybody can resonate with that. You know, if they, if they don't necessarily have kids themselves, or if they're not um, a, a citizen per se, but living in San Francisco, everyone now knows at least someone who's left, um, who's left San Francisco because it just wasn't 
um, a, a welcoming or a friendly place for them to be, and especially for for families. And we have to fundamentally change that. And I think appealing to that, um, you know, uh, that that this is our city. That th those of us who are still here have made a commitment to stay. Right? You know, we're we're still here. Um, we, we've got vaccines rolling out. You know, people are getting vaccinated. The the end is is near, and and we're still the ones left standing. So what can we really do to engage and make the city um, even better? You know, and and leverage this moment in time. Um, to make some fundamental changes that we need. I think I think that's the question that we can be asking and, and we can use this moment in time because we have so many more people who typically would not have been paying this close attention actually paying attention and, and participating in events like this and, and asking the questions and having the dialogue. I know I, 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 for one, am chatting it up with everybody. I have a dog. Um, so I've talked with everyone at the dog park. Most of them do not have children. Their, their dogs are their children, you know, classic San Francisco. And they all have, have seen the news. They, they have questions, you know, people really want to engage in the conversation. And so we want to welcome everyone who, who, who wants to do that um, to, to help support this effort and push this through. Thanks. That does answer my question. I, I am still worried, though, because at least in my anecdotal observation, the only people that are kind of paying a lot of close attention are like me and my fellow parents that are in SFUSD and anyone that either doesn't have like a kid in SFUSD because they're either in private school or don't have kids. I, I'm finding a lot less engagement. Versus I think you do have this like, you know, immigrant parent community that has a lot of engagement, but then because of all the rules, we, we can't really participate. So I, I guess it's more, I, I would, I, I guess maybe the suggestion is like, you know, if you could tap into that, for instance, like I feel quite powerless in terms of like the election system, I can't really participate. So I'm, I'm maybe I'm asking for like, what are things we could mobilize? Well, well I'll, I'll comment as the the single guy on on the call with no with no children. Um, uh, to I think Jennifer's point, I think the what you can do in some respect is like raise more awareness on social media. Um, I will say, like I heard a lot about this through social media, and it raised my awareness of the issue. I would have never been to everyone's point here, been cognizant of school boards, um, and so. I do think with people raising awareness for the issue, continuing to um, do that, like it makes people like myself more aware of the issue. And we, to Jennifer's point earlier on, makes us, I recognize that we're part of a symbiotic ecosystem in San Francisco and uh, want to ensure that people who do have kids will stay in San Francisco so I can continue to interact with them. Um, I don't wanna, a lot of my friends have children. I don't want them to leave San Francisco um, and so the better school system we have, the more likely that my friends who have kids will stay. Um, so it's slightly selfish still in my, my interest, but um, I have had friends who've left San Francisco because they're, they're, they didn't want to have their kids in, uh, in the school system. Um, and so I want my friends to stay here. So I think maybe that's one angle is like, we care about our friends staying here as well. Um, but yeah, Patrick and Jennifer would love to, to follow up there as well. Yeah, well, I'm, Uma, maybe I can um, try to address sort of each point of your question. I think on the first point in terms of engaging non-parents, it's important to remember that a campaign like this has a number of stages, right? So we're at an early stage where the people that we're um, talking with, engaging at this point, are naturally going to be the people who are the most passionate, they, they, whether it's because they have children in schools or just because they've been outraged by what they see, or what, for whatever reason, it's natural, in this early, it's natural in this early stage, we're going to tend to be um, more engaged with the people who are more engaged with, uh, with the public schools or have much stronger feelings for the, um, for the school board. As we gather signatures, that will undoubtedly also be true, right? You know, we have to gather um, ultimately more than 50,000 signatures. You know, some of those people may be people that you sort of stop and say, yeah, that makes sense to me. But a lot of those people will care and they'll stop because they um, have a reason um, to, to want to sign. And then ultimately, if, if, if we're successful up to that stage, it will be a general election. And the thing about a general election is uh, it doesn't matter how passionately you care, your vote still counts as much as anybody else's vote. So then it becomes more of a, of a sort of process of making a much broader argument, one that even if people aren't engaged as passionately, they say, okay, that makes sense to me. 
um, yeah, like this system doesn't seem to be working. The, you know, the change makes a lot of sense. It's been thought through and so on and so forth. So I think there's sort of different layers of engagement that are kind of natural in a campaign. And Jennifer and I are just going to go out and, and talk to as many people as we can. And, and we've got lots of people volunteering and, and helping out and, and, and working with us. And that's, so that's sort of like um, passion level and engagement level is sort of naturally going to fan out over time, I think. And then there's a separate issue which you raised, which is very specific to the immigrant um, population. And um, you know, I'm, I, I've heard what you've been describing. And, um, I've heard that before from other people. I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's painful to hear that it's still sort of a, a difficult to engage. You, you don't feel like you're as attached as you'd like to feel um, to the system, um, you know, partly maybe because of the way, um, as you said, sort of it's worded and, and because of federal law. There's nothing we can do about federal law, unfortunately. But as we develop a new system, because remember, it's not just about appointing people. It's about how are those appointments decided? Is there some sort of nominating commission that can engage people in the broader community? Is there a, um, a system for reporting out to people? And um, so even, even if you're not directly involved in selecting someone, you may still feel engaged in terms of having a role in the process of, of how that appointment system works, as well as having an, uh, a role in the oversight and transparency and reporting process. Um, and that's just gonna be part of the work that, um, you know, that, that goes into developing the system to make sure everybody is represented so we get the best outcomes um, we can for everyone. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Uma. Um, I think that's a really profound and, and, and a difficult question. Um, and I do want to say that in, in all respects, the, the proposed solution actually will make this better. So I do I do agree with the proposal that Patrick and Jennifer are. Well, that's great. Come sign up, sign up on our email list and yes, get I, involved. I, <laughs> oh, I, I believe I already am, but thank you. Excellent. Yay. Thanks, Uma. Thanks. Um, so in this time, uh, I think we're a little bit over uh, in terms of the hour, but as we wrap up, um, Patrick and Jennifer, um, anything else people can do to get involved? Um, so one is obviously sign up on your website, bettersfpublicschools.org. Um, but what else can people do to help get involved and raise awareness for this issue or help to, to solve the problem? Uh, yeah, so real simply, just you have your devices in your hands now, <laughs> I'm guessing, is, um, you know, like all of our social media and invite everyone you know to like us too, because a huge part of getting this effort off the ground and, 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 and getting this to pass is engaging in conversations like this. It does take a bit of dialogue for people's heads to wrap around. You know, right now we have all these different parent groups that are bubbling up. Um, and they're bubbling up for different, very valid reasons, but their solutions are a little bit more instant, right? So we have one of the parent groups is decreasing the distance, um, a, a wonderful grassroots organization that their focus is opening schools, right? And pressuring the school board, pressuring our district to do everything they can to get our schools to open. That's very concrete and tangible. Um, you know, there's, there's there's other efforts as well. There's one, you know, with the recall, which is, you know, to recall certain board of ed members. Um, you know, we're not affiliated with that. But again, that's another um, effort that is, um, you know, kind of offers a quick fix that that we don't necessarily believe is is um, captures the entire picture and the deeper issues going on. Like we really want to focus on systemic long term reform. But the way to do that and the way to get folks excited about this is to have the conversation and we can't have the conversation if people aren't aware. Um, so, you know, liking Instagram, Facebook, anything with our campaign on it, you know, um, having the conversation with just your friends, your colleagues um, and, and getting them to follow us is really one of the best things you can do. And just, you know, get out there and, and invite every single person in your, you know, two, three, four hundred, five hundred thousand friends list on Facebook um, to like us. That's that's a very concrete sort of, you know, um, thing that you can do now and, and get involved with our campaign. I'll just I'll just add two quick things. One is, um, as Jennifer said, we, you know, we, we are focused on long term um, systemic reform. We're not affiliated with the efforts to um, recall certain uh, commissioners. Having said that, um, if you know, if you find it in your heart that uh, you would like to sign um, one or more of those petitions, um, that might be a good idea too. But that's entirely up to you. Um, and the second thing I'll say is, um, you know, 
please donate. Um, you know, whether it's five dollars or five hundred, um, you know, whatever you feel, um, you know, to help us, uh, we'd be very grateful. So please um, join us. Um, you know, find out more about us, like us, um, tell people about us. Um, and, you know, if you've got any spare change, throw it our way. We'd be very grateful. If I can, I want to ask one last question of Patrick to bring us full circle. At the very beginning, we talked about how Patrick is a, was a grandmaster in chess and one of his games was featured in the Queen's Gambit. And then we talked about how uh, all those head scratching things that the Board of Super, or the um, Board of Education has done over the past year, and yet it's used as a political stepping stone, and this is a reason to restructure. So, Patrick, I want to know, of all the commissioners, is anyone playing chess, or are they all playing checkers? <laughs> I, 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 I wanted to say they were, they were playing in some other way, but I, I feel like that would be inappropriate. So, um, I, oh man, I don't know. I, I think they've just thrown the rules out at this point. It's a, it's an all out food fight. It would be my, my best guess. <laughs> I, Joel, I was told one, uh, by a pretty, um, a successful political, I want to say consultant or former chief of staff of, of a successful congressperson, um, that we assume politicians are playing 4D chess, but really they're playing 2D chess. Um, and, uh, and not even 3D chess. So he had a low opinion of most, most political politicians and their ability to play chess. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Patrick. Fun answer. Thanks, Patrick, Jennifer, for joining. This was amazingly educational, uh, no pun intended, um, uh, uh, to learn about the school board and uh, opportunities and options for restructuring going forward. Um, but yeah, thanks everyone for joining here. Uh, our, uh, and uh, as Jennifer and Patrick mentioned, if you want to learn more or coordinate with their effort, go to bettersfpublicschools.org. Um, if you want to subscribe to uh, future shows that we're doing, just click the, the button at the top and you'll be notified of our future shows. Uh, our next show is actually going to be equally exciting in a, in, a, in a different light. We'll be interviewing um, the director of the emergency department, Mary Ellen, uh, in San Francisco's uh, emergency department. She is the one who's been responsible for uh, largely coordinating our entire pandemic response from shelter in place to vaccine distribution. Um, so she's gonna walk us through the entire year of um, everything she and her department did in the mayor's office to uh, help make San Francisco one of the lowest infection and death rates in the country. Um, so yeah, thanks again, uh, Patrick and Jennifer for joining and we hope people will join us in our next show as well. Thanks, Blal. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, everyone.